Ramble. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Ooh, baby, I love your pod. Love your pod. I want to listen to the Curious Pod every day. I love your podcast. I listen while I'm at my work. In my fucking cubicle, I hate my balls. But the holiday season is coming up. I'm not going to go to work today or for another two weeks. That's great. I don't care what you have to say is what I want to tell my boss every day. (laughs) Welcome back to the motherfucking Curious Podcast with Josh Peck. I am Josh Peck, and you are the listener, and that's a wonderful thing, because without each other, this is stupid. doesn't work. Need both of us. Otherwise, fuck it. Welcome back. Can you believe us? Here we are again, another week. I'm delivering this intro way too late for my producer, Kevin, to cut into the, to the show, and I tend to include Kevin in my opening monologues when I, fe- I feel guilty, and... I figure that he's at his computer slaving away. He's got a life and a wife and a lovely, I'm sure, a bunch of friends. And he doesn't need to be on fucking GarageBand or <laughs> Pro Tools, whatever he uses to splice in my ridiculousness of 90 minutes of podcast bullshit and get it all set and ready to go on Spotify and the iTunes and everywhere we can get podcasts. He doesn't need to be laboring away deep into Monday night. This isn't part of his job title, and yet he does it because he's freaking committed. And also, jerks like me make his job harder than it needs to be. So here I am, Kevin, saying, I'm so friggin' sorry, and expect a great Christmas gift. I'm gonna give you a hundred bucks to Nordstrom. <laughs> I don't know why I told you. I should have just sent it. I shouldn't have just... I ruined the surprise. I hope you like Nordstrom. It's just kind of like my go-to gift. I figure everyone needs clothes. And look, we don't know each other, like, super well, but... I know you enough to know you're a snappy dresser and that perhaps you could get a nice piece from Nordstrom. And let's be honest, hundred bucks, it's not going to buy a lot, but maybe a nice shirt or pair of pants. You seem about a 32 waist. I don't know. I'm jealous. You're in great shape, Kevin. Anyway, guys, how's it going? The year is almost over. It's almost a wrap. And I think that's great. And I hope you guys aren't doing too much fucking reflecting right now. Just trudge on. No resolutions. No, I'm going to do better next year. Fuck that noise. Do the same. Do worse. Don't put the pressure on yourself. Wonder why? Because it's hard enough being a human being on this earth without the outside noise, without that inner monologue, that shitty committee telling you why you're not enough. Let me tell you, let Uncle Josh tell you something. You are enough. You're just enough. You're just right. You're the perfect recipe. You're two parts adorable with three cups of awesome. And... You know, and yeah, sure, you got a tablespoon or two of of annoying, but who doesn't? You know, that's what being a human's about. Maybe if we start forgiving ourselves and stop trying to live up to this, you know, like crazy expectation that's unattainable, maybe if we did all that, we wouldn't have to worry about it. We wouldn't be, you know, so busy taking the antidepressants and the drugs and the alcohol and talking to the shrinks. Because let's be honest, those shrinks, they're more fucked up than we are, you know? You gotta be a certain kind of crazy to want to hear a bunch of kooks talk all day, 10 hours a day, barely have time for a lunch break. You ever, you ever look in the eyes of a shrink? They're not happy. They're probably on half the meds themselves. They're probably dipping into the samples. The Lexapros and the other antidepressants. I don't know. I'm not one of them, but, you know, takes a particular kind of person. Anyway. 
I'm ranting. What else do I have going on? Having a kid, still, that'll happen soon. Whether I like it or not. And that's great. Because I have no other choice. It has to be great. Because it can't not be great. And if it isn't great, I can't tell you about it. I can't be like, guys, fuck. Fuck! It's not as, it's not how I hoped. Man, I want to, I miss my freedom. I can't say that. You know what? They're going to write articles about me. Not in big newspapers, but shitty ones. They'll be like, Josh Peck resents his newborn. (laughs) That would be a terrible look. I don't want that at all. I want them to write stories like, Josh Peck was in the new Avengers. No, I'm kidding. I want them to write stories like, Josh Peck, great dad, loving every moment of it. I think I will. I'm actually excited. I married the right woman, and I think she's going to be an incredible mom. And I think that's like 95% of it. And for that other 5%, I'll fill in the gap by being a pretty good dad. Serviceable. Not bad. I mean, you know, when you're, as a father, as long as you don't like hit the kid or play like, you know, any kind of like mental uh, warfare on them or make them feel less than, if you root them on during their games and teach them how to play catch and just, you know, scare their boyfriends when they come to the door when they're 16 to pick them up for a movie date. When you know they're not going to the movies, they're going to go with their friends and smoke the devil's lettuce and make bad decisions. But this is adolescence. This is what being a child is about. You know what I mean? This is how they gain knowledge and uh, experience. And so I've heard. I don't know. I mean, my wife and I haven't taken any of the classes. Maybe we should have. I regret it. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to make a complete and utter uh, admission here. We haven't taken a single preparatory class. And I'm assuming that I'm just, it's just going to click in for me. But it might not. You know, there could be a moment where I need to know childhood CPR. But I don't know it because we didn't take the class. I'm not certified. I am useless in an emergency. And I don't feel great about that. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to learn the child CPR. I should know that. And the Heimlich. I think that's a very popular rescue method. I think that would be good. I think it'd be good to just have in my life. Because I want to be that guy at the restaurant who's like woofed down a buffalo chicken wing. Because they they're not the kind of guy that eats slowly. You know what I mean? And they're crushing some, you know, something with small bones. And so now they're, you know, they're in trouble. And they're turning blue. And they're not making a sound because that's a universal sign. If someone is making a sound, then you've got a chance. If they're making that like, they're getting oxygen in. But if they're like, you know what I mean? Like barely a sound, they're about to meet their maker. They're about to have a one-way ticket up to heaven. And you gotta, you're the only one standing in the way of that train. And you can save them. I want to be that guy. I want to get a round of applause at a Chili's <laughs> or an Applebee's. <laughs> and for them, like, I want Marvin, the general manager at that Chili's, to be like, damn, man, thank you so much, dude. God, that guy almost died. He comes in here every week and he eats 14 buffalo wings. And it's always like around the 12th one that I'm like, this motherfucker's going to choke. And he finally did. And you were here. Thank God. Man, you want cheesecake? And I'll take that celebratory cheesecake and know that I earned every bite of it because I'm a fucking hero and heroes deserve cheesecake on today's show 
Robert Greene. Heard of him? Um, he wrote a book called The 48 Laws of Power. He wrote a book called Mastery. He wrote a book called The 48 Laws of Seduction. And uh, most notably, or most recently, he wrote a book called The Laws of Human Nature. He is a brilliant author, um, a quasi-CEO coach. He sat on the, the board of many uh, uh, big companies. I don't know about many, but American Apparel for one. And he's, he's a guru. He's the guy that people go to to find out what they need um, to succeed, to accrue power, how to navigate the crazy waters of business and politics and enterprise and what have you. Um, and while Robert's written these incredibly brilliant books, he remains one of the most humble, generous people I've ever met. And I felt so lucky to meet him. Uh, we were introduced by my friend Ryan Holiday, who has worked with Robert for a really long time and who's a friend of mine and was nice enough to, uh, to make the introduction. And we speak about Ryan a lot in this interview, and my interview with Ryan will be next week because I uh, bumped Robert's interview up because he's got a really cool book out that's right now called The Laws of Human Nature, which you should go buy. So um, please enjoy Robert Greene. Good. Thank you, Robert, for, you know, sitting here with me. This is a, a dream. Oh, thank you, Josh. My pleasure. So we were introduced by our mutual friend, Ryan Holiday. Uh-huh. And he has sort of gone on to, it's interesting in reading your writing and his and to see. Uh-huh. It does very, I see the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how were you guys initially introduced? Well, um... A man named Tucker Max, you might have heard of. Ryan was friends with him. I don't know how that happened. But Ryan uh, was 19 years old. He was going to UC Riverside, and he was also working at, I think, a talent agency. Um, Like Lincoln Park was one of their groups. Yeah, that's how Ryan and I have met. Oh, really? Yeah, he worked for my manager. Oh, oh, um, what's his name? His name, well, it was Michael Green and oh. Sam Maydew is my manager, but they started The Collective, which was the company. Yeah, The Collective, but there was somebody else there that was... Aaron my, Ray. Yeah, that's who I know, too. Okay. So, um, Ryan was a big fan of The 48 Laws, and I was looking for a researcher. I was working on my third book, The Strategies of War, and he offered his services as a researcher. And I've had a lot of bad luck with people working for me that they're, they just don't understand my method. They're not very diligent or conscientious. They don't think for themselves. Mm. And Ryan was totally different. He was, you know, very young, but clearly he understood my method, how I think, the kind of books I like. And he was just a really great researcher. I could tell from right away. So um, I gave him a lot of work. And then at one point... Uh, he offered to fix my Wikipedia page, which was a mess. I All of was, ours are, I think. Yeah, it was <laughs> yeah. back in '06 oh, or '07, where, you know, I didn't really understand how I could, what I could do, how I could possibly. Yeah, fix people it. add stuff to mine. I have no idea where it comes I from. I just read yours earlier. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. It's all right. It's it could not be bad. more though. Sure. Uh, yeah, I got to get um, on that. Yeah, well, get Ryan to do it. Yeah. Anyway, so he did mine. And then Dub Charney, the CEO of American Apparel back then, 
who I was consulting with, complained to me about his Wikipedia page. And I said, you've got to get this kid, Ryan, to help you fix it. And he fixed it and Dove loved it. And I said, look, why don't you hire Ryan to work at American Apparel? He's kind of brilliant when it comes to the internet and the digital world. So he hired him to head the marketing department. And the rest is history. And out of that came his first book. But Ryan and I have been friends ever since. He's helped me with subsequent books. When he's writing a book, I help him with his books. So we have a very nice symbiotic relationship. And will you elaborate on when you say that he understood and appreciated your method or, or the way in which you approach things? What, is that, what does that look like specifically? Well, it's a little hard to describe, but um, I try and write books with stories in them. I don't like giving straight information. My whole approach is I'm trying to seduce the reader into reading. You know, I'm, I'm giving you material and information and ideas, but I don't want it to seem heavy hmm. or, or too intellectual. I want people to be drawn in. So I use stories from history. A lot of researchers, the research I give people is I give them biographies to read and see whether they'll fit into how I'm thinking. And most people don't understand that you're looking for drama, you're looking for dramatic moments, for people's story that could fit almost like in a movie or something. Um, And Ryan had a sense of that drama. He understood that certain aspects, this was when I was doing the war book, certain generals were very boring, nothing would come from it. But he could recognize a book that would fit into how I write stories. You're familiar with my books, so you know the kinds of stories that I use. There has to be a hook to it. There has to be a lesson to it. There has to be something that can relate to your life. So if I'm talking about Genghis Khan or Hannibal, you have to think, God, that, that, you know, I know people like that, or I could use that idea. So that's not easy. He grasped that and he understood. So he researched not completely how I would look at things, because that's not possible, but more or less sort of through the same lens that I do. And other people had no clue. I would pay thousands of dollars to help them research for my books and they would give me a research report and it was clear that you know they were just approaching it like it was a a a university project or something some kind of academic thing sure there was no sense of clicking and connecting to my material Mm -hmm. i would give them all sorts of ideas to and, and try and coach them but you know they they I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that Ryan understood my work very well, but he's also somebody who's very open and fluid. He he took criticism, which was another thing that's very unusual. A lot of young people, younger people, myself included, it's hard to take criticism. It's hard to listen to people tell you, this is what you're not doing. And I could be honest with Ryan. I could tell him, no, that, that isn't working. That isn't a good idea. And he was he didn't get resentful or angry or or passive-aggressive. He took it very well. These are very interesting qualities to have in a person. So if you're looking for an employee, you want people or a partner, you want people who can take criticism, who you could say, that's a bad idea or you're not listening to me. Yes. And will you speak to criticism? Because I'm not quite, I mean, I'm sure you address it in some respect in in your books, and yet I'm not, you know, it doesn't, I don't remember there being like a complete direct law, perhaps, or something, and it seems so important, the ability in which to learn from 
you know, someone who, who really knows. Well, I really talk about a lot about that in my fifth book, Mastery, mm. um, which is all about how to find the right career path for yourselves and become a master in your field, whatever that field is, acting or writing or whatever. And I kind of lay out the roadmap for how to get there, discovering what you should be doing in life, serving an apprenticeship, working with a mentor. And throughout the book, the idea is um, you're not going to master your field unless you're willing to be honest about yourself and assess your know who you are, know what you're good at, know what you're not good at, so you find the, the right path for yourself. So you, you were probably, you know, natural actor. If some reason your parents had said, no, Josh, you need to become a lawyer, you would have found yourself kind of lost and you would find it hard to learn and you, your mind would close off. So you need to find the career that excites you so that you want to learn. But in, in your apprenticeship and in finding a mentor, you have to be willing to listen to people who are going to give you an objective opinion about where you are in life. Do you find most people shut down from Completely. Criticism? Look, I've been um, a consultant pretty much for 18 years or so on my books <clears throat> with very powerful people. I, I can't mention their names out of confidentiality. None of them? 50. Right. I wrote a book with him. Dove. These are, these are public knowledge, but others I can't. Sure. Um, but they're high people, very powerful in politics, in foreign countries as well, um, artists, um, uh, politicians, um, you name it. Uh, I know there's other business, a lot of business leaders. And um, they'll hire me for quite expensive. I'm not cheap. I wouldn't think so. And, Come on. Two and, million plus books. So, I mean, please. <laughs> well, thank you. And I give them advice. And 95% of the time they won't listen. They hire me um, for my advice and I, <clears throat> I pride myself on being brutally frank and telling them, this is what you need to do. This is where you're wrong. This is your weaknesses. These are your strengths. And uh, most people, particularly powerful people, want to hear you echoing their own ideas. They want to be, they want their own opinions and ideas confirmed by you. They don't want to think that they might be doing something wrong. And I'm talking about very powerful people, but CEOs. Isn't that most people to a certain extent? Yeah, I just say that to illustrate the idea that most people are like that, but even people who retain sure. high positions in power. I think Elon Musk reminds Ryan and myself very much of Dove. He's someone who's clearly not listening. He's stacked his board with a bunch of yes men and women. And that's what happens to a lot of people. You just, you just want to hear what you want to hear. So the ability to take criticism. So like, for instance, in acting, you know, it's hard to know uh, if you're doing something right or not. But once it's on film, it's objective, it's there. You can look at yourself, you can see your performance, and you can judge it. If you're good at that, if you're open, you can see, wow, that really sucked, or I really nailed it there. It's very hard to be objective about yourself because you're not seeing that yourself on a, on, a, on a screen. Sure. You're not seeing yourself from a distance. You're just who you are. You think you're great. You think you're wonderful. You don't know what other people think of you. They might think that you're mediocre. They might think that you're abrasive. Or they might think whatever. So you need the ability to get objective opinions about 
your skill level and about your personality and about how well you're working with other people. Very, very difficult. And it's the it's probably the difference between people who are really truly successful for long in the long term and others who are not. You can rise pretty far in life and you can become a Dev Charney or even an Elon Musk by not being a good listener, by being an entrepreneur, by saying, I have a vision and I'm gonna put it together. But we notice with a lot of entrepreneurs is they attain a level, a certain level, through that energy and excitement, but then they they plateau because they're not willing to listen to other people. They got that afar because they're such a rebel, such a maverick, by not listening to other people. They're starting their business and going, oh, you shouldn't do it that way. Come on, you can't make it. They don't listen. They build a business. They're successful. And they think, God damn it, I don't need to listen to anyone. I'm perfect. I know what I'm doing. So that's their, that's their Achilles heel. So the ability to take in objective appraisals of your skill level and of how well you work with people and about who you are is absolutely the most critical life skill of all, I think. And do you think like, in, in listening to Elon Musk when he was on Joe Rogan, I remember- You watched that whole thing? Oh yeah, I was I was in. All three hours? I'm a podcast junkie as it oh, is, okay. so I didn't need much- uh, I've been on Joe Rogan much. Yeah. And what I found interesting with Elon and was a testament to sort of what you were mentioning, the maverick sort of- yeah you know, irascible spirit was that he, when he was talking about the boring company and Joe posed the question of about how, what company, the boring, oh, company, the boring company, right. And uh, building a tunnel structure under Los Angeles and Joe much approached it in the way I believe I would, which would have been the insane insurmountable task uh, and the infrastructure would take to build a tunnel system and the legalities under yeah. one of the biggest cities in the world. And Elon's answer was, oh, no, you just you get a permit to dig a pit. And I dug a really deep pit because getting a permit's easy. And you dig a pit, and I did it in the Tesla parking lot, and it's just really deep, and that's how you begin. And then you get permits to build a tunnel. It just so happens that my tunnel is underground. It's like I find for me sometimes my Achilles heel is that I'm the sheer magnitude of doing something. I become so ultra aware of the obstacles and what have you and all the things that would stand in the way that it, it dissuades me. And it seemed like he had such a... okay. You know what? It, well, that's that's what I meant in the beginning about how some people can rise to the top because they have a vision, yeah, and they're not going to listen to other people and they're just going to do it no matter what. But then, um, and that's very powerful and very important. It's a key component to success, is to thinking that you have you're destined for something great. Yes, you have a vision and you're not going to listen to all the naysayers out there. But that is not enough in this world. It's never enough. Right. Um, but would it be his? So, yeah. I was going to say, like, and, and I totally agree. Is it his inability to reconcile that, like, he might not be the, the greatest at, at portraying a certain public image, that of a CEO who needs, yeah. who's um, basically, he's, he's uh, at the, the behest of his shareholders. Yeah. But is it just his inability in which to recognize that and then find his Sheryl Sandberg or whoever it is to be that person? Yes, very much so. That's exactly the problem. Yes. Um, so there's two ways you can go. You can train yourself to become a great executor, somebody who has great ideas but knows how to put them into practice, 
or you hire the people to do that. So two examples, uh, one from my Bat Mastery book, which is my fifth book, um, Thomas Edison, probably the greatest entrepreneur that ever lived, one of the greatest inventors. He actually was sort of an Elon Musk. He had visions, but he also was really good at finding other people who had great ideas and taking them and using them. Um, and he, you know, had an idea. He had a one of his greatest visions, though, that he was going to create a city that could be lit through uh, light bulbs, through electricity. It was a totally novel idea. Nobody could think it was sort of like the boring company. How the, the odds against it are insurmountable. The infrastructure you need is about what he has to do with Los Angeles and the tunnels. He had to wire an entire city like New York. And the difficulties were incredible. But Edison was painstaking. He would spend hours, days, weeks, working on the simplest problem, figuring things out. He was persistent and he worked really hard. He knew how, that it was one thing to have a vision, but if you weren't able to execute, if you weren't able to make put the ABCs together and do all that hard work, it wouldn't amount to anything. And his ability in the end, when he lit the entire city of New York, was absolutely unbelievable, but it came through hours and hours and hours of insane work. The kind of attention to detail that I think a Musk doesn't necessarily have. Um, the other way of going is um, from my war book. Uh, George Marshall took over the, um, the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, um, in the 30s. And he realized that the United States wasn't prepared for war, and he had to get the country ready. But the Defense Department was massive, a massive bureaucracy filled with all sorts of people who had jobs who didn't deserve them, who weren't working very hard. He couldn't go in and fire everybody. He couldn't go in and just start all over. There was a culture there already, and he was just one person. He had a vision for transforming the Department of Defense and get it ready for war, but it would be impossible for one person to do it. So he hired the right lieutenants. Um, people who could work with him, like Eisenhower, like Bradley, who thought like him, he could instill in them the spirit and the ideas, and they would go execute his vision. You'll find a lot of people in business who are like that. They're good at hiring the people who will execute it. Steve Jobs is kind of a hybrid there. He was definitely a visionary on the level of Elon Musk. He wasn't quite an Edison who would put in those thousands of hours of detailed work. He was pretty painstaking, more than Musk, but he was really good at hiring the right people who would do all of that laborious legwork. You know, I've been looking at Musk for a while, and the problem that I, I read an article a while ago that was sort of foreseeing the troubles he would have, and to launch a car company, um, manufacturing automobiles is incredibly intensive labor. And cost-intensive, right? Very cost-intensive. Um, the only way you can make money is mass production, right? It's been the model since Ford. So you can only succeed if you can put out so many thousands of cars a month. And to do that is a really hard task. And you can't do that overnight. You know, General Motors wasn't built overnight. You have to build slowly. He didn't build slowly. He went very quickly. He followed the Amazon model, which is... 
I'll just start building it and I'll create a brand and I'll get people excited and that will be enough and then the money will come. But the automobile industry is not like books. It requires something much more disciplined. You have to build it slowly. He was very impatient. So these are the flaws and those are the ways to correct it. You either have to be someone who has a vision. It's very important. I talk about it in one of my chapters in The Laws of Human Nature that the primary thing that we're looking for in a leader is someone who has authority. And that authority comes from the sense that you have a vision, mm. a vision of where the company is going, of where the country is going. People love to follow someone who has a great vision of the future. It's very seductive to the humans. Um, so that's very important. But you need to be someone who can execute that vision or find the other people to help you do that. Do you think, too, that speaks to the fact that people, I find mostly, are so inherently indecisive, unclear about what they want? Like, it's a question I wanted to ask you, and it's something funny that Ryan and I spoke about, which was that I feel like your directive of, you you know, you must find that thing that you're intrinsically passionate right. about. But I find that is, and then you can employ all these tools to really um, execute it in the best way. And yet, <clears throat> I find that people's greatest challenge is that they're just not quite sure of well, what you, that thing is. Well, you're very, you've, you've hit it. You, you nailed exactly the problem with people. I congratulate you. Thanks. And I, I address it in two books, mostly in my fifth book, Mastery, and in a chapter in my new book, The Laws of Human Nature, about how to find your sense of purpose. And I devote a chapter in, in Mastery to it about discovering your calling in life. And in both those chapters, I give you very specific ideas but about how you can do that. But what you say is very true. So the great geniuses in life, we can find from instances when they were four or five years old, of where they knew where they were going. Something clicked inside them. Steve Jobs passed a, an electronic store in Sunnyvale or whatever that city was, and he goes, wow, these gadgets, I'm, I'm enamored with them. And, he, and he was, what he was fascinated with was the design of technology. Tiger Woods knew that he wanted to play golf when he was a year and a half old when he was in the garage watching his father hit golf balls. Albert Einstein was given a compass when he was like four or five for his birthday. The idea that there were unseen forces in the world moving that needle on the compass fascinated him. I can give you a hundred examples of that. But most people don't have that. They feel lost. Um, they, the problem is they're not in touch with themselves. So I compare it to a voice inside of you. When you're three, four, five years old, you're drawn to certain things. I believe everybody is like that. I don't think there's any exception to it. You find yourself naturally drawn to something. It could be sports and moving your body or dance, or it could be music and patterns and mathematics. It could be words and language. It could be, you know, building things with your hands. Sure. You're drawn to that and you know it. You feel excited by something. But what happens is you get older, you start listening to your parents. They say, no, Josh, you need to go to law school. You need to become a doctor. Mm. I'm Jewish, so I'm just choosing the things that are... So am I, and, <laughs> and it is ringing very true, Mom. No, I'm just kidding. Well, yeah. that was my parents. Uh, oh, and I, I once heard a woman say, I was listening to her speak, and she said, we're all born perfect, 
and then someone tells us that we're fat yeah. or we're in, you know, and it starts planting these seeds of deep yep. insecurity and, and like, and we also build these defense mechanisms because we say, I never want to feel this way again. And so I'm going to keep the world at bay or I'm not going to yeah. try because I don't want to revisit this feeling of not feeling like I'm enough. Right. And so that's very true. And so if I compared it to a voice that's inside of you that's saying very softly, become an actor, become a writer. Yes. Like you know, it starts to get drowned out by your parents, by your teachers, by your peers and friends who say, that's, this is what's cool, this is what is not cool. And by the time you're 18 and you're about to enter the world, the university or the work world, you've lost that voice. You're not, you're not sure of who you are. You want to follow what other people are doing. You want to follow what your parents told you. And you enter a career path, 22, 23, that doesn't really suit you. And then you're going to find your, you're going to get lost for the rest of your life because you're not in touch with who you are and what really excites you and what you were meant to do. It's very simple. It's very practical. I'm not trying to be all poetic here about life. The human brain, we don't learn unless we're emotionally engaged. Mm. If you want to learn French because you're interested in seducing a French girl and you're in France, you will learn enough French in a month. But if you hate, if you're at university and you have to learn it, it's like a requirement. It'll take you five years to learn what you could learn in a month. It's the level of engagement and excitement that you have for learning. So you're not going to succeed in life. You're not going to get very far if you're not developing powerful skills. And you won't develop those skills if you're not open and excited by what you're learning. So it's very critical that you choose a path that somehow meshes with who you are, what your uniqueness is. And when you talk about pivot points in the respect of like, for me, I started acting probably too young at, at 10 years old and I've had some great success and a wonderful career. And here I am at 31 and over the last four years, I've sort of embraced this new career in social media and podcasting, which has afforded me success as well and been sort of this great new chapter. Right. And it was a, an ability in which to let go of, even though I had felt like so much of my identity was wrapped up in this thing and I put so many years into it that perhaps my my path wasn't going to go in the way that I expected but it would be fulfilling and monetarily successful in ways that I needed it to be and will you speak to that well yes so the career paths are never straight arrows they're mm. zigzags you're finding your way you're combining skills so what you learned as an actor and dealing with people and knowing how to kind of open other people up is something that you're applying to your podcasts. These are skills that you learned. It's not like you suddenly dropped acting and went into podcasts. You're actually building on things that you learned. Isn't that correct? Yes. Okay. So many successful people follow that zigzagging pattern. But overall, there's a sense of direction in your life. So you were drawn to acting at 10. I mean, I don't know if your parents pushed you in or if it was you, but you were drawn to it probably. And then, I don't know, age of 22 or something, you felt like there was something missing or you wanted more. Or you weren't sure about the future. You were then drawn to something else that meshed with you personally. That was your curiosity about ideas and about uh, interviewing interesting people, mm. etc. 
So you know who you are. You know what you're excited about. You know what connects with you. You didn't say acting, huh? It's not connecting with me. I better go into real estate because then I'll be able to secure my future and make a lot of money. Security. Yeah. Yes. And then you would have burned yourself out and you're 35 years old and fuck, you're lost. I'm, I'm, oh, I hate it. I'd be a shit real estate agent. Okay, but a lot of actors <laughs> right. go do that. They, you're so right. They do. Yeah. So you you are following a path, but it's not a straight line. I did the same thing. Um, I gave a TED Talk. People can look that up um, about my own path. But I knew that I wanted to be a writer when I was probably eight years old. But I couldn't figure out what I was good at writing, what I was meant to write. So I tried, after graduating, I tried journalism, and I kind of hated it. That didn't really work. Then I thought, I'm going to be like a novelist, because I thought I love fiction. And I wandered around Europe, and I tried to write novels. That didn't work. I kind of sucked at that. <laughs> then I came back to Los Angeles, where I'm from, and I got into the film business. I thought, I'm going to write screenplays. And I was really bad at that. I wasn't a good fit in Hollywood. And I got very depressed. I was kind of zigzagging along, but I wasn't going any really far or in a, in a right direction. And then this man, 1995, I met in Italy. He, he's a book packager. He asked me if I had any ideas for books. And I kind of improvised what turned into the 48 Laws of Power. But I almost instantly recognized that this was what I was meant to do. This was it. But I was able to take all the other things that I had done and use them. So the journalism taught me to write on a deadline and to be concise and to think about the reader. And my writing novels and screenplays taught me how to make things dramatic and exciting for the reader. And all of the writing gave me discipline and practice so that I brought it all together when I wrote my first book. So you can wander, particularly when you're in your 20s. You can, you're not quite sure. You can try this, A, B, C, and D, but you're not lost. There is an overall sense of direction. It's not like you love writing and then you try real estate or you try becoming a lawyer. It's you try different kinds of writing. You try different kinds of performing, different kind of public things where you're in the public and you're, you're performing on some level. There's an overall kind of direction guiding you and then you can combine your skills into something very powerful. Do you think that... I, I'm fascinated about where you started collecting these things for, you know, for the 48 laws and the respect of, if you had said that someone approached you to start writing your fir first book yeah. in the mid nineties and you had said, so I wrote a, you know, a Portnoy's complaint, or I wrote about growing up Jewish in, in California. I'd be like, all right, I get that. That probably was on the tip of your tongue, but a book, you know, having a book like 48 laws of power, it's, to me, the amount of research and, and the accumulating all these insights, like where can you pinpoint a time in which you first started waking up to these, these trends, these patterns where you started seeing that like, wow, the world power structure really works in this way? Well, um, my girlfriend and I, she's in the other room right now, once counted that I had 80 different jobs mm. before I wrote the 48 laws of power. Um, some of them very short, you know, but Generally, I tried a lot of different things. And in those experiences, I saw every kind of power-hungry person you can imagine, every kind of manipulator, every possible type of asshole that is out there, I saw, and I saw their maneuvers, and I saw how they thought. 
I was also a great reader of history. I'm constantly reading books. I love history. I'm reading love, loved Machiavelli. I love reading about great Renaissance princes, etc. And so when I was like working in Hollywood and I was an assistant to a director, um, and I was seeing the kind of hardcore manipulative tactics he was using on actors and producers, I thought, wow, that reminds me of Cesare Borgia in the Renaissance. That reminds me of what Napoleon did. So I was building up this kind of catalog of experiences. I didn't know what would come of it. But when he, that man asked me if I had any ideas for books, I gave him several ideas, but this was the one that he got excited about. I told him that in my experience, power has not changed. We live in a very PC world where that Hollywood film director projects the image of being the nicest, most liberal, most amazing person. But behind doors, he is a raging asshole who will do anything to manipulate so that, you know, he gets exactly what he wants. I think I know who you're talking about. No, oh, you okay. don't. <laughs> sure. you know, he shall remain nameless. Sure. Um, and, you know, so I'm saying power is timeless. I, you know, people may not be beheaded for making a mistake, but they're fired for making a mistake. Sure. Law number one is never outshine the master. In the old days, the story I use, Nicolas Fouquet outshone the King Louis XIV. He was thrown in prison for the rest of his life. Now you're fired. Okay, it's just a different form of punishment. So um, my whole life was building up these experiences that I was now able to bring together in this book. But once I decided to make the book, as you point out, intense labor, it was, it was a vision like we spoke about earlier. But now came the point of execution, the difficult point. And I could say one important thing about that is I was 36 when I first met that man. Started writing the book when I was 37. I was basically facing the precipice of falling into loserhood for, for, for good. My parents were about to write me off. I was going to be 40 in a few years. Tough. I didn't make anything of my life. I was so fucking motivated to make the 48 Laws of Power successful that I work like a fiend researching and putting things together. So that's sort of the genesis of it. Yeah, I got another ad for you, because I love ads. I want as many ads as possible. Listen, I'm having a baby, a child, a baby human, and they are expensive and needy. They don't care, okay, if the game is on or if you're supposed to have a date night, you know, and close the deal a little bit later because you all been married a while and it doesn't happen as often as it once did. And I know what you're thinking. Josh, are you, what are you insinuating? Are you talking about that's right, going out for ice cream, right? Because when you first start dating, all you do is eat ice cream. But then, you know, you get married, get some stress. All of a sudden, you're eating ice cream a lot less. And that sucks because everyone loves ice cream. Anyway, Dropbox. Imagine a workplace with no distractions or disruptions. No endless searching to find the latest version. No constantly switching between apps. Now imagine a place where everything just flows. At Dropbox, we're building a home for all of your team's work and the conversation around it with a suite of tools that maximizes inspiration and minimizes distraction. Because when teams are in flow, everything just clicks. 
Visit dropbox.com forward slash flow. Dropbox. Keep teams flowing. Yeah. Who are you? We know that somewhere in the world, someone downloaded this podcast, but we don't know anything about you. The people who support this show would love to know just a little bit about who is listening. If you have two minutes, it really does only take two minutes. Help us make the show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. Just go to listenerq, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q.com slash curious and take the short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show, which we would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered into a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Yeah. Two minutes. ListenerQ.com slash curious. That's ListenerQ.com slash curious. You know, in talking, I asked Ryan this when I had him on on the podcast. And obviously, so many of his books are about you know, he's got the, trust me, uh, I'm lying, but he also has, you know, so much of, of his writing is about stoicism and virtue right. and ego is the enemy, obstacles away. And so in asking him about 48 Laws of Power, and, and I'm sure you've spoken to this before, I said, is it, does it, is it in conflict or contradictory in some respects to so many of the things that you write about? And And what he said was that, it's it's the ability in which to um, to be aware of these things that are happening. It's it's a cautionary tale in some respect. Is that this is unfortunately or fortunately the things in which are part of power structure, and you being able to see it coming will endow you with the tools. Well, yeah, and I agree. But you know, Ryan is thirty one, I believe. Your yes, age. he's very powerful, very successful. He didn't get there by just being totally virtuous. I'm not saying that he's manipulative at all, but he understands power. He understands marketing. What he did at, at American Apparel yes. was very 48 Laws of Power. And what he wrote about in Trust Me, I'm Lying is very 48 Laws of Power. So he understands how the world works. And, you know, Stoicism isn't too far away from my books. Um, Marcus Aurelius had a quote I, don't, I can't say it exactly, but he says, when a boxer gets into a ring with another boxer and he gets punched, he doesn't complain and go, God damn it, you hit me. I don't deserve to be hit. He accepts that. That's the game of life. Well, we should see that in life in general. When people hit us, that's just who they are. People are who they are. We shouldn't judge them. We should just accept them like we accept a rock or a stone or that boxer. That's what people are like, and that's what we're going to get. And the stoic attitude of accepting the world as it is and working with how things are permeates the 48 Laws of Power. I advise you to go back and read the preface. It's very much like Marcus Aurelius, advocating that you feel at the level of detachment. In fact, I believe I used that quote from him. So those, it's not far off from Stoicism. But the latest book is more about is more in that stoic spirit than the 48 laws. It's more about accepting that this is nature. The Stoics have a word logos. This is these this is the way the, the universe is. This is what permeates the laws that govern all behavior. And so I'm very much in that spirit of of kind of looking at people with some distance. But all my books are approaching life with a little bit of detachment because I feel like that's what will make you happier and in also more successful in general. 
And will you speak a little bit to how you met Dove Charney and, and became a part of, uh, joined the board of American Apparel? Well, um, Dove was a big fan. This is probably about 04, I think. Um, he was a big fan of the 48 Laws. Um, probably the biggest fan I've ever met. He was, you know, pretty fanatic about it. And he had just, he had started American Apparel maybe three or four years before, and he'd opened his first store in Los Angeles. There was only one store when I met him. And uh, we kind of clicked, you know, both Jewish, both have a certain way of looking at the world. Uh, he's a very charismatic, exciting person. He had built this company out of nothing, and I was impressed with him. He had a dark side, a dark side that came out later. Did you see um, any of that at first? Um, well, not really. Not really. I mean, I could see that he was extremely driven and quite aggressive. But he did generally treat people fairly well. Um, but there wasn't, I don't know, not an abusive side to him. He wasn't, his attitude towards women could be not so great. Mm. And some people would point that out, and I was a little bit blind because I did like him. Um, uh, and then I, he took me on as a consultant for the company, and then it went public. American Apparel went public in 07, 08. I don't remember the exact year. I think it was 08. It was right when the crash occurred. And he asked me to become on the board of directors, which is kind of crazy because I'm not a business person. I really don't know. I don't know. I can't tell you what EBITDA is. Mm. Um, and being on a board is a pretty heavy job. But I said, okay, I'll do it. It'll be an interesting experience. And it was an interesting experience. Uh, I got to see business from the inside. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about why businesses, a lot of businesses fail and um, why uh, going public and being on Wall Street can be the death of a company. Will you speak to that? Well, you know, it's something that Elon Musk very much, we, we can draw very parallel lines between Musk and Charney. Um, in that, when you're an entrepreneur like Dove is, or like Elon, and uh, you have this very powerful vision, you, your impatience is that you want to grow your company very quickly. And the quickest way to grow a company is to go public because you can get your hands on a lot more money than if you're private. You can get your hands on a lot of money. Uh, but with going public comes a board of directors, comes Wall Street, comes quarterly reports you have to report to your shareholders comes pressures and limits. And so you're seduced into doing this because you're impatient to grow. You want that glittering pot of money. It's also very prestigious going public. It's kind of an exciting moment. And ring the bell. Yeah, yeah. ring the bell, etc. to do the whole thing, yeah. Yeah. But so you're, what is your instinct? Well, I'm losing control. I'm a control freak. All right, I better stack the board with my people I like. Now, sometimes you can do that. Dove had a problem in that he had other outside investors who forced him to bring in people for the board. So he wanted me there as a loyalist. Um, Elon Musk sort of stacked his board, like Facebook stacked their board with people who were kind of loyalists. So that's your instinct to protect yourself 
from the pressures that being going public are going to bring. But um, when you're on a board of directors, your loyalty is not to the CEO, but to the shareholders. And you feel pulled in both directions because you are legally um, vulnerable if you don't take actions that are in the shareholder interest. And if you only side with the CEO, there's problems and dangers with it. So you're pulled in both directions. And often share, uh, people on the board will start rebelling like they have with Elon Musk when things aren't quite going right. They take, get you off Twitter, don't smoke pot, etc. Because it's hurting the bottom line. It's hurting you know, the image, the brand. And so, you know, Elon Musk is toying with the idea of going private again. And Dove was doing the same thing. He wanted to maybe take it back private because they realized they had made a mistake, that this was constraining them, their, their great entrepreneurial maverick type style. But at that point, going private wasn't going to be a solution either. You know, it's just going to feed your own grandiosity. And is Dove starting to accrue indiscretion at this point where you became aware of things that you knew would inevitably probably bring him down? Well, um, I remember upon occasion, I can't remember what year it was, I saw that he was having problems in that um, other people on the board were beginning to not, were beginning to doubt him and the company company wasn't doing too well. We were found, we were floundering in red ink. We owed so much money because of the crash in 08. So some of it was circumstances. And I said, you know, morale in the company's kind of down. I said, Dev, you need to reconnect and show people that you have a vision for where American Apparel is going. It's not enough to have created this brand that you have that's so well known by 2011. You have to think longer term to think where is where are we going to be in five years and bring that to the company and, and solidify it and show it to the board and I recommended having retreats and doing this and very and it went one through one ear and out the other and I was at this point I'm realizing he's not going to listen he's going to do what he what he's going to do he started having some harebrained ideas such as thinking that American Apparel could become like a designer label and come out with I can't remember what it was. It was like a new brand of jeans. He decided to redo the stores so that it would not be what it was, but be kind of something that was more Higher fashionable. End. A little bit more fashionable. Mm. And that was a mistake. Uh, so he was starting to make mistakes. Problems were starting to accumulate, cascading. And then he decided to build a factory out in, I forget where, uh, towards San Pedro or somewhere where um, a big problem was there was the factory downtown and how were things then, where did they go from there once they're manufactured, right? How is it, how is it delivered? And it was kind of chaotic. And he was going to build a place that would be where everything would go and it would funnel all of the products and be shipped directly from this one place and sort of streamline and bring everything. But it was a nightmare. He he He... It was like Elon Musk. He executed it too quickly. He didn't think it out. He was in way over his head. The technology for sorting all the different products was weak. It wasn't well developed. And it was costing huge amounts of money at the moment when we were already millions of dollars in debt. It was at that point that I realized that this ship is going down. 
at the same time, there were some things coming out about lawsuits, about sexual cases, etc. And me and another board member and a couple board members decided that maybe we have to think of replacing Dove. But we met with him one last time, me and one other board member, to try and see if we could help him and, and not have this happen. And he didn't get angry, but he wasn't listening. We were trying to send him a signal. But I tell you, to this day, we'd ended up firing Dove. And I almost regret it. I almost wish that we hadn't. Anyway, <laughs> no we were bought by this company that came yeah. in, Standard General. Acquired? Acquired. Well, they, they were going to take over our debt yes. and get a controlling interest. And um, they just had no understanding of the business, of the apparel business of fashion. I knew it was going to be a disaster. They fired me. But I, I'm not bitter. It wasn't bitterness, but I was like, these people have no vision of what an apparel label. I'm not good at the business side, but I know fashion and I know what makes a brand like that. And I understood American Apparel very deeply because I've been involved with it yes. for many years. And I knew it was a disaster. And it would have been better if we just left Dove there to bring the whole thing down himself than let this other company kind of destroy it. But Does, does Dove have a, a second act to his life, do you think? I think, um, you know, Ryan is writing a little bit about this in his new book that he's currently working on. But he he's sort of attained a level of imbalance. I still like him. I respect him. I don't have anything against him. Part of me still feels bad about what happened. But you, part don't, of me, you don't talk anymore? No, we don't talk right. anymore. A part of me feels guilty, but also I realize we did the right thing. Um, but he reached a level where he was not sleeping. A hedge fund was the word, sorry. Hedge fund. It was a hedge fund company. God damn. <laughs> I'm losing my head. So um, he's not sleeping. He wasn't eating well. And he was getting very mentally imbalanced. Um, I have a chapter in my <clears throat> new book about grandiosity and how a lot of leaders succumb to grandiosity. And the icon I use is Michael Eisner. And I chart very carefully in the book how Michael Eisner started off successful and how it all went to his head and he succumbed to grandiosity and it became a disaster and it was one of the greatest falls in the history of business. Well, Dove became grandiose. He thought he could do no wrong. Has he learned his lesson? I don't think so. Does he still have his finger on the pulse of fashion? I don't think so. I saw something where his new company, I don't know, you know, it kind of seems like more of the same in some respects. More of the same, but not really connected to the times that we're living in. Yeah. Which is odd because I talked in the 48 Laws of Power about always being up with the times and that you tend as you get older to get locked in the period of your youth. And Dove's thing was, you know, sexy clothes modeled off the 1980s, you know. That's not where we are right now. That's what I first saw in 2011. That wasn't the future. American Apparel had to build on what it had already created, but kind of grow in a new direction. Millennials weren't connecting to it so well. Does he still have that touch of, of the zeitgeist, you know, which is another thing I talk about in the new book? I think he doesn't really have it, so I'm not, I'm not yeah. so optimistic. Do you think, because you speak uh, a lot about grandiosity and you say how it can be an asset in certain respects if it if it's governed or it's yeah. 
Will you speak to the side where it can be? Uh... Well, in, in just I don't mean to keep talking about my new book, but the laws of human nature. Yeah. Um, each chapter ends with a section about how you can turn this potentially negative trait into something positive. So I have at the end of grandiosity, I talk about what I call practical grandiosity. The problem with grandiosity is that you lose contact with reality, right? You think that you're perfect. You think that you're infallible. You think that people should just follow you no matter what, that all your ideas are brilliant, that you're going to build Euro Disney in Paris, near Paris, because French people will appreciate this great, you know, the culture that you've that you're bringing to them a mix of Disneyland and French culture is the worst possible idea right so but there's a positive element of grandiosity which is you dream big like you were talking about with Elon Musk it's kind of a cojones you've got the balls to imagine something big and to try and bring it to pass mm. so people without any kind of grandiose sense are like who you mentioned Oh, I don't think I could ever pull that off. I'm not even going to try. I'm not good enough to do this. You need to have some of that energy. But what I talk about in my book is it needs to be practical. It needs to be grounded in reality. So, for instance, um, people who are grandiose um, can have, can be very persistent, right? Like Elon Musk or Dove Charney in getting what they want. Well, persistence is a very positive quality. You want that in your life, but it has to be tied to something like I talked about with Thomas Edison, where you're willing to put in the thousands of hours in doing the work. You know, you want to have a large vision for where you're going to be in five years or 10 years or something, some great thing that you've created, but you also want to ground it in, in, in a practical sense and you want to have a very realizable set of goals that you're going to reach. Not, I'm going to build the next General Motors, but how am I going to build that slowly, step by step by step? Who's a CEO or someone of that um, position who you think is doing it incredibly well? Well, um, I think the guy who's the CEO of Net <coughs> Netflix, Reed, Reed Hastings, Hastings, yeah, has done a very good job. He's somebody who a few years ago made a mistake. I can't remember what it was. He tweeted something wrong. And he apologized in the right way. Learning how to apologize in the right way is a very powerful thing. He learns from his mistakes. I read an article recently about the new CEO of Best Buy. He very much follows this. He realizes that he's in a dying industry. Nobody buys hardware anymore from a store. Sure. So he's going to build it slowly, and he's going to figure out the niche that he can carve out in this new world. I believe Warren Buffett, who's a business leader I quote a lot in this book, He's obviously older of a different generation, but he's very much in this mold. Um, and what I like about him is that he is a maverick. He's a rebel. He never goes with the conventional wisdom. He goes against the trend. When people were getting all exuberant in the 60s and the stock market was growing higher, that's when he sold because he saw that people were, were crazy. He did the same thing in 08. He warned about the the subprime disaster that was coming. So he goes against the times when he needs to, but he's very practical and he's very, he has incredibly large vision of his company and nobody can argue with his success. And, and he's like the most profitable com company in the history of the world. But um, he knows his own limits. He knows that when he buys a company, he 
He's not just buying uh, numbers, he's buying people. So he very much researches CEOs that fit his way of thinking, who will run the business his way, kind of like we were talking about earlier, someone who will execute his ideas. So he's very practical, but he also has this sort of old overarching vision. I, I think it would be great if we had politicians more like that, but we don't. Well, and and I think, too, it's the idea that Warren Buffett knows that in a recession or in a booming market, people will always drink Coke. Right. It's just a very simple idea. Like, right. It's companies that he can wrap his head around. Right. And do you think that... I'm interested to hear, and, and you've spoken to it a little bit, but and this is a completely... Um, self-interest question but what do you think about the i I would almost say like the epidemic of negative self-talk right like this shitty committee that so i know i suffer from that so many people i feel like impedes their ability to succeed is that we overthink things we see things 10 steps down the road and it's all doom and gloom so why even try right and i I find it can be so insidious. Where do you find, you think a lot of people your age, you notice that a lot of people you know? Jews. No. (laughs) Jews, for sure. Neurotic, you know. Sure, Jews definitely like that. (laughs) But that Jewish energy can become something very positive. Sure. Because uh, if you do it right, because I write a book, then I think, God, this book is going to suck. It's going to fail. My parents were right. I'm a loser. (laughs) I better go out and promote the hell out of it. Otherwise, it's going to flop. Right. So you can turn that energy into like doing something positive. But it can wear you down. Um, The main thing is, you know, things have to happen organically in life. You can't suddenly wake up and say, God damn, I'm going to start this business and I'm going to make a fortune. Mm. It has to come through a process That process is what we were talking about earlier and I talked about in Mastery. You found the right career path for you. You're headed in a direction that is appealing to you. You've developed skills, solid skills as an actor, as an interviewer, etc. Okay. And now it's time for you to branch out on your own. You're 30. It's time to make that business, to write that novel, to direct that film. You've, you're not just floundering in the sea with like great visions. You have something very solid behind you. Years of work experience, discipline. Now, when you come up with an idea, you've already taught yourself that there's a bridge between an idea and executing, execution. You've had to learn that. You learn that in acting. You can't just go in and ace the part. You have to prepare. You have to learn and you have to be disciplined. And you have to go through the criticism. Okay, that gives you a level of confidence. I call it trusting the process. The process will bring you to a point where you're ready to make something creative. If you follow that, you won't have that experience that you were talking about. People will be coming to you and saying, oh, Robert, that's a bad business idea. Don't do that. You go, no, I I feel confident because I've already tested it. I've already been thinking about it for five years. I've already been developing the ideas. I have the skills. But when you don't have the skills, you don't have the experience to back you up, you just suddenly come to this idea, naturally, the first some negative word that comes in from your parents, you'll you'll just melt and you go, oh, you're right, I can't do it, yeah. Yeah. You know? So if you follow the right, if you're patient and you've done, done the right things, you've gone through your apprenticeship, you've learned 
you need to learn and you're excited about something, you're much less susceptible to listening to people's criticisms and negative ideas. And believe me, I have a lot of experience in this. I've seen it a lot of times. The people have a great idea. They come to me, Robert, I have the greatest idea for a book. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Here's how I think you should accomplish it. And I point out all of the horrible legwork they're going to have to go through to bring that about. I never hear from them again. Of course. That's it. Because the moment I shatter their dream and I say, to make this book, it's not a bad idea. And people don't have bad ideas. It's usually not negative. It's usually they shouldn't listen. There's always a kernel of something good in it. But you have to learn. You have to listen to other people. You have to execute it. If you go through the, the hard, laborious, tedious process, and that's when people lose interest. I mean, I've had friends pitch me ideas before, and I don't have the heart to tell them that, like, this seems like it could be compelling, but you're not the one to execute it. Like, that's, I find that, you know, in watching, like, things like Shark Tank and what have you, you learn so quickly that, like, the idea is almost slightly, unless it's completely revelatory and groundbreaking, it's kind of the easy part. Right. It's it's the legwork that truly is what tests your ability in which to execute. Well, the thing is, when you're starting out in your career, I, I talk about this in mastery, you have to develop discipline and, and a diligent work ethic. Um, you have to learn a skill, and that requires going through something tedious. You know, I talk about the basketball player Bill Bradley in that book, and he was a white guy who couldn't jump very high who just didn't, wasn't naturally gifted for the sport, but he loved it. And he trained, went through this insane, rigorous process of teaching himself the most boring tasks in basketball. He would put chairs in his, off, in his, in his bedroom, in his house, and learn how to maneuver in between them and pivot, etc. And the most boring kind of tasks, or he created glasses where he couldn't look down and he would dribble for hours and hours so he could learn how to dribble without looking down and seeing. When you do that, you develop, you, you, don't, you learn that the more you practice, the better you get at something. And at a point, it becomes more pleasurable. If you want to learn the piano, it's very boring at first. You can only play the most boring songs. But after a year of regular practice, suddenly it becomes more fun. Two years, even more fun. Three years, even more fun. You learn that the discipline and the step-by-step -step opens up a whole world to you. Now you can do something else. And so when you help come up with your project for a podcast or a film, and you're facing all of that tedious legwork, you're not in the slightest bit intimidated by it. You actually embrace it. You know, yeah. To write my books, to write this last book, I had to go read 300 books, more than 300 books of research and taken. I can show you my note cards and you'll like, you'll like vomit and how much work <laughs> I, I did and the tediousness of it. But I love that part of it. I've come to embrace it. It's actually fun. You know, it's like I compare it to building a cathedral. You can't suddenly start putting statues up there. You have to build a foundation brick by brick by brick by brick. And you know. in doing that immense... Uh, amount of research and preparation then and then when you inevitably put pen to paper or fingers to the keyboard what does that look like are you do you write quickly what's we give us a bit of your insight yeah into well your process. There, it's never been that way and the this last book is even worse in that you never just sit down and write so um 
basically, I start out with a very open mind. Um, when it comes to this book on human nature, um, I wanted to explore all of the different fields, psychology, anthropology, um, econ economists, things about human behavior, um, novelists, every f uh, neuroscience. And I have, a, uh, I've said before, I have a kind of bias towards seeing people, seeing human nature in a negative light. So I wanted to uh, balance that out by looking at books that are more positive. I just open it up to everything. And as I'm taking these cards and writing notes, I begin to see patterns. And these patterns turn into chapters. In this book, there are 18 chapters. One on envy, one on grandiosity, one on irrationality, one on the shadow dark side of people's personality, one on conformity, one on, um, on um, short-sightedness, on and on. But in doing all the research, I saw that these, these were categories, patterns that are timeless. Mm. You can look at the Bible and you can see stories of envy, like Joseph and his brothers, etc. And so I have my chapters, and now I have to write a chapter. Well, I just don't start writing it. I have to take all of that knowledge and information that I've accumulated and structure it. Because the structure is very important. And so uh, I begin each chapter with a story about a famous person who exemplifies the law. I have to go through all of my note cards. It's very laborious. It's very boring. And I have to find a way to take an 800-page biography of Queen Elizabeth, for instance, and turn it into an eight-page story about her life, illustrating how she was incredible at exuding authority at a time where women weren't, could not possibly exude and be a leader like that. So... It's very, I have to work really hard in making that story dramatic, in choosing the, most, the juiciest bits from her life, in writing it in a fun way that will engage the reader. On and on and on. It's tedious. The first draft is usually very bad, very mediocre. And you kind of have to embrace that, right? Like you have to write it bad first for yeah. it to become great. Sometimes there'll be moments where you get excited and it gets a little bit better. Well, but you it, need something to keep oh, you going. Oh, I always have to be excited. <laughs> yeah. I have to always be, but it's always often in the second and third drafts that things start becoming more fun and I'm able to bring more of myself into it. What's up, babies? It's your boy Josh Peck, out in full effect, coming for you 100%, reading you an ad because this show is for profit, okay? What do you think? This podcast is a charity? No, we need to make money over here. So now do your part and listen up. God. Mac Weldon, y'all know about that? Because their mission is simple. They want to make sure all your basics and beyond are smartly designed. And shopping for them is easy and convenient. That's why they founded Mac Weldon, because we wanted more out of our basics. And always question how something so friggin' essential could be such a pain in the butt to buy. Mac Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, simple shopping. Yo, they're not lying about that simple shopping, because I recently was on the Mac Weldon site... I like filled up my basket, lickety split. All of a sudden, like a day later, whoa, there's my stuff. I couldn't believe it. Like, it just was an incredibly 
easy, succinct process. And you know how websites can be where they're like, yo, let me ask you like 45 questions. And what's like your grandmother's billing address? You're like, what does my grandmother have to do with this? And they're like, don't worry about it. Do you want your stuff or not? Answer our questions. Mack Weldon ain't that way, okay? They want you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it. And they will still refund you. No questions asked. They're just, you know, they, they just offer so much. They, they got the premium, most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, sweatpants, the most that you will ever wear. So let me tell y'all some exciting for my audience, the curious listeners. You're going to get 20% off your first order. Just visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code CURIOUS at checkout. That's 20% off your first order. Visit MacWeldon.com, enter promo code CURIOUS at check out do you have like a set of apostles like people who you send these drafts to to get notes from well anna in there she's looked she's been with we've been together for almost 30 years wow and um she's reads all of my whenever i finish a chapter she's the first one to read it she first i always look at i'm always a bit neurotic and insecure does it suck every now and then she'll give me i see that her her response isn't very excited sure but she reads it she edits it she tells me what works what doesn't work so that that's my main apostle that's huge my wife's that way too yeah it's incredible how our partners can have such insight into things that we were sometimes blind to well that's what i meant about you need people who can give you objective opinion about your work and if someone there's pitfalls with that because we can get into fights where i feel like she's being personal sure we've had that but it really helps I trust her and I love her, so I I know she's not coming from a place of pettiness or, right. or envy. And you trust her taste, like completely. I, I love my wife's taste. I yeah. think it's one of her greatest assets. That's great. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, my, my wife's a filmmaker. She she directs films, mm. and I help her a lot. I do the same thing for her. Right. So it goes back and forth. If it was just one way, she might start resenting it. But sure. Um, and will you talk about, I, I listened to you on Dave Asprey's podcast Yeah, and Bulletproof, Bulletproof. And you sort of talked about like the illusory nature of someone like Donald Trump, who from afar would seem as though he, he exudes sort of the 48 laws in some respect. And yet there's, it lacks it being tethered in anything real or that matters. Yeah, well, I have to confess that I'm I'm a liberal and I really loathe him, but I'm trying to be objective here. Same here. And not bring it, you know, by personal into this. There are some laws that he is brilliant at. I have to give him credit. Court attention at all cost. Yes. There's probably never been anyone who has been so good at that law. He knows how to dominate oh, the, yeah. the media sphere and every day by day by day in a sick, psychopathic way. He's brilliant at court attention at all cost. If I could think of, you know, create compelling spectacles for his base, he certainly knows how to create very compelling spectacles. So I'm sure there are a couple other laws that he's good at. But in overall, I would not consider him a person of great power in that um, he's good at the, at the marketing aspect, which he learned from being on a reality show. He's basically an actor. But... He's in the, you know, he's the president of the most powerful country in the world. Immense bureaucracy, immensely complicated. And, you know, I believe, as I've told other people, time will tell. We can't, you know, the economy seems well. 
seems to be doing really well, and maybe he's onto something with China, I don't know. I maintain that none of this will come to anything good because he's not a strategic person. He's not in control of himself. A person of power is in control of himself. He says less than necessary. Have you ever heard Donald Trump say something, say less than necessary, law number four? Not recently. No, okay. <laughs> not never. <laughs> <laughs> right. He's not in control. He doesn't master himself. He's like an id. He's like a raging id. Yeah. You know? He loves to argue. He loves to argue, which is another, he violates that law. He's not a great courtier. He's an awful courtier, um, et cetera, et cetera. Despise the free lunch. He tries to get everything for free. He tries to never pay his taxes. Um, so I maintain that in the end, this lack of self-control is going to be his downfall. And I've told people, look, in two years, we're going to be facing some disasters that are going to be of his creation. He's going to create, he's going to go down as one of the worst presidents we've ever had. And when it comes to power, you can't judge people in the immediate, in the present tense. You have to wait and see how things pan out. You know, um, all of the presidents have been like that. I remember um, somebody once, there's a famous story about a French premier, a Chinese premier who was asked, what do you think, uh, who do you think won the French Revolution? And he goes, I don't, we haven't found out yet, sure. like 200 years later. So things take time to reveal what happened, who was powerful, who was not. People who seem great in the present fall apart and crack up, and we only realize in retrospect. But the idea that somebody is completely giving in to their narcissism, their anger, their resentment, and using that to fuel their success, that can't possibly last, in my opinion. And, and what do you think? It, it seems as though... I mean, one other thing I'll say is Please. power is a numbers game, and I make that point. I forget the law. It's, um, I forget which law it is, but um, it's basically about you have to create a base of support as large as possible and, and build your power on that. The more people you convert, the stronger you are. And his whole strategy is is the opposite, is creating this energized, um, radioactive base of 36% of people. He's put himself into a corner. How will he ever get out of that corner? How will he ever appeal to a wider audience? So narrowing your base of support is not a powerful strategy. And I just, I only have two more questions for sure. you. I um and if you you're comfortable to talk about it or not, please let me know. Yeah. Would you know just a personal question? You've obviously recently had a health challenge. Yeah. Do you feel comfortable kind of talking uh -huh. about it? Yeah, uh, I had a stroke about a little over two months ago, and um, you know some of it came from working on the laws of human nature. Really, I worked a little too hard. The stress, I developed high blood pressure, I had to go on medication. What does that look like, like staying up all night working on it, not No, I, I work three hours a day, I, not more than that. Just too much thinking, trying too hard, just worrying about things too much. Mm. And sometimes I would go to bed and I would be so exhausted, I couldn't, I'd like, God damn, I may not wake up in the morning. I work too hard, but I got through it because I exercise every day, I meditate, I eat well. But I did have high blood pressure. And then, uh, and I had high cholesterol, not, not a good mix, but I was dealing with it. But then in early August, 
Strangely enough, I was walking in Griffith Park nearby, and a bee stung me in the neck. Mm. And it was fine. I've had bees many times in my life. About a week later, it just got massively inflamed, my whole body on the side. And I had to go to the hospital, and they put me on prednisone, which is a drug that kind of... Steroid. Like steroid. And it increased my blood pressure, and I was getting very jittery, and I had to stop taking it. And about a week later, I was driving with, with Anna, and she had me pull over immediately. She saw that something wasn't right. My face was drooping. I, I lost control of my body. I didn't realize it. I was having a stroke. She called 911, and they were over there in minutes, and they rushed me to the hospital. If it hadn't been for her, A, if it had gone on 10 minutes later, I would have had brain damage that I would never recover from. And I might have gotten in a terrible automobile accident. I could have died. It was, very, it was like a near-death experience. Terrifying. Terrifying. So I was rushed to the hospital, and they operated on me. And I was in the hospital for a week. But mostly what happens is the, my left side of my body, because of the stroke, the brain damage is on the right, my left side of the body is very weak and kind of useless. Um, temporarily? Temporarily. Um, at least that's what the doctor said. I should be able to recover, but it's very slow, very painstaking. You have to learn all sorts of basic skills, like just how to pick things up and how to move your arm up. I, a week ago, I couldn't do what I'm doing right now. Bringing your hand yeah. to your, your mouth. Yeah. It's like, a, like you're drinking a cup of coffee. Yeah, or even get my hand around a cup. I can do that now, but I can't really lift it. Or walking. Walking is a real nightmare, but day by day by day by day, it's going to get better. I'm doing like three hours of therapy a day. Like occupational therapy? And physical therapy. Walking, shoulder exercises, finger exercises, toe exercises, leg exercises. That's what Ray's here for. Was there ever a moment where it affected your brain, not just the the physical sort of side of it, but where you got a fear that like, oh my God, is there a chance that I might not be able to do what I do? Yeah, but from the very beginning, I was very lucid. I never had, my speech was a little bit slurred. <clears throat> um, and I'm still a little bit weak. I haven't completely gotten my voice back. But um, she can attest for it. In the hospital, I was making all kinds of jokes and making the nurses laugh. And sort of my weird sense of humor was still there. My weird way of looking at it and dealing with people, I hadn't really changed. And um, I could, you know, sometimes there was slight memory lapses, but I really don't think anything yeah. brain-wise was damaged. But we'll see in the next book. <laughs> sure. It's totally, you know, how far off I've gone. Maybe it'll actually help me. Yeah, you never know. Maybe unearth but, some but, things. But I was on a show the other day, and the uh, host asked me, do I regret, you know, all the hard work that led to the stroke, mm. you know, was it worth it? My answer was yes. Um, Hell yeah. Yeah, because yeah. this book took me five years to write. It's the distillation of everything I've learned in life. I'll have that for the rest of my life. I can show that I feel proud. I achieved it. I brought it back to pass. If it kind of ruined my health, that's the price I had to pay. But I would never exchange my health for not having written the book, I would feel very unfulfilled, like I missed something that I was meant to say. Did you smell toast? You know, they say that when you're having a stroke. 
Wow, I've never heard that. Oh, yeah. It's a common thing. A smell of toast, burnt toast or rubber or like there's... No. Yes. It was really weird because I didn't know what was happening. She saw it. I felt like everything was fine. And then the next thing I know, I'm, I'm in an ambulance and I don't really remember it. And then I'm in the hospital and slowly, slowly I'm sort of realizing what's going on. But I never had anything like that, no. Wow. It just suddenly came over. But the, one thing I forgot is where the blood clot occurred that ended up uh, creating the stroke mm. was in the exact same spot of the bee sting. Was there any correlation? They, they believe so, that the inflammation that that created led to the clotting at that particular place. Huh. So I was probably had a tendency towards something could have happened could have been 15 years later, but that kind of triggered it, mm. the combination of the blood pressure and the cholesterol. What was the most revealing thing to sort of come out of a near-death experience for you? Well, um, it's that, um, you know, I have to kind of reassess who I am. I have to, I'm always someone who values being very independent doing everything myself, being in control, and I lost control. I'm very dependent right now. Um, I can't do simple things. I can't do my exercising. So I've had to be, I have to accept it because fighting that will just make me, some people get very frustrated with the, with the stroke hmm. and it just kind of wears you down. I've had to accept it, but at the same time, I'm ferocious in getting back to where I was. I'm not going to let this stop me. I'm going to get over this. But it's very, it's a daily struggle because um, I've been walking now for about five weeks with a cane. And your left foot has this thing where it drags. You can't raise it. So you're kind of shuffling with the left foot. And it still won't go away. And it's very like, God damn it. I walk like, you know, like, like Satan, you know, with his cloven, cloven hoof. Sure. Or, you know, it looks terrible. But I have to be patient. Eventually I'll get over it. It's the last thing that, that comes back because it's the furthest thing from your brain or your toes and your foot. And a cane is kind of pimp. You know, it's Well, I got myself a kind of a pimp yeah. cane. But there's another one out there that I might get, which is purple paisley i like that all right <laughs> with an acrylic handle shoot maybe get an outfit to match it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i kind of got into the i like that quality of having a cane <laughs> uh, canes are neat. so my last question i ask this at the end of all my podcasts if you had one or two robert green commandments that you wanted to impress upon other people i mean it's sort of your life's work i feel like to to uh, have these but what what would they be? Well, the one thing that I would say is to embrace your uniqueness, embrace your weirdness. Mm. That is your source of strength in life. <clears throat> I talk about that in all of my books and mastering in my new book. <clears throat> um, and it's what people violate all the time. It comes from when you're in high school and your weirdness is what people make fun of. Okay, maybe you're a rebel and you have a mohawk but you're conforming to that little group and everybody in your group kind of validates you. But if you're in that 
rebel punk group in high school and you suddenly do something that's different because you're not exactly like everyone else, they'll ridicule you. People are always ridiculing you and trying to make you conform to the group. And it gets worse and worse and worse and worse as you get older. And your source of power in life is your is what exactly other people might criticize you for, your, your weirdness, your uniqueness, your ideas that nobody else has. Um, now, you can go too far in that, you know, and you can become uh, a loner or, or an insane person. You have to connect to society and to other people. But um, following, embracing what makes you different and weird and strange is a path to power, you know? Yes. You weren't meant to be just a child actor or an actor. You were meant to do something else. And you're creating some a podcast, Curious, that reflects you as you probably were when you were eight years old, probably what made you kind of a strange kid in some ways. Maybe even people made fun of you. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Well, I was fat, too, so that welcomed a lot of uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, criticism. Okay. But I think you're right, yeah. So anybody who's ever been successful, you look at them and you say, there's one of a kind. There's never been a Steve Jobs ever before. There's never been a Warren Buffett. There's never been whomever you put in that box, Albert Einstein. They're unique because they embraced what makes them different. Yeah, it comes with some pain. Um, and I know with my books, The 48 Laws of Power, you might hate it. You might think it's satanic. But I can guarantee you, you've never read it, seen a book that looks like it. Mm. Right? With its sections that I created. Totally. The paragraphs, the, the quotes, the things on the sides, the shapes. And it reflects me. It reflects my weirdness. And the publisher at one point was a little frightened by that. They wanted a more conventional book. And I said, no. I know I've never published anything before, but I'm sticking to what I have here. So I stuck to what was strange about me. Um, that's your source of power. The second thing is, <clears throat> is something that I address in all of my books, but most notably in The Laws of Human Nature, is that... We're social animals. Um, we're meant to be able to work with other people. We are created by other people. We're not really individuals. Our, I know that kind of violates what I just said, but I can connect the two. We're, we're a composite of, we didn't choose our DNA, our parents, our, the way our brains are wired. We have certain teachers that we don't choose. There are things that be, are beyond our control. So we're not completely in control of everything. But one thing is, is that you can't succeed in life unless you are able to work with other people on a high level. Whether you're able to understand their psychology, see them as individuals and work with them, know how to persuade and influence people and not put, push them away, know how to deal with toxic types that are that will confront you. So that is what I created the laws of human nature for, to kind of train you in the basics of human psychology and how to deal with weird and difficult people out there. And the problem that a lot of people have in the world today is they're not social enough. They're so locked in their phones, in their digital worlds. They're Postmates. They're Postmates. Do you know Postmates? It's food delivery service so that oh. you never have to go outside and actually right. meet anyone. Right. Convenience. Right. So it's, you're not human. Humans 
have mirror neurons. We respond to body language. You can learn you can learn much more from being in front of a person than watching them on a screen. We respond to the physical in life. You need to have more interact social interactions. It's like if you wanted to be a great tennis player, the more you hit with your backstroke, the better you'll get at it. The more you deal with people in social situations, the more confident and the better you will deal at in that. And a lot of people are really, really, really bad at it. They're very awkward. They haven't learned how to get outside of themselves. And so a major part of my new book is about developing empathy and learning how to get inside the perspective of other people. And I think learning that skill would be a major um, cure for a lot of the problems and illnesses that we're seeing in the world today. Loneliness, anger, online rage, uh, narcissism. So I wrote this book in a way to kind of address some of these deadly illnesses and sins that are pervading us. But perfecting your ability to get along with people. You might have great technical skills. You might be a great actor or writer. But if you don't understand people and you piss them off and you insult them inadvertently, you're not going to get very far in life. So that's sort of my second basic rule. That's it. That was Robert Greene. What an interview. Ryan Holiday is next week. Um, and go buy his book, The Laws of Human Nature. It is um, just the pure dopeness. You're going to love it. You're welcome. Enjoy that shit. Uh, guys, have an incredible week. Sorry about my early rant um, before the episode, but you know what? I mean, you listen to the pod. This is episode 31. You know what the fuck you were getting into? You know who I am. You know who your boy is. And I'm all types of crazy that I'm real deal without the peel. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Man, I'm so glad that rhymed. Because if it didn't, it just would be such a sour note to end the podcast on. Anyway, guys. I love you. I think about you. And that's it. What else do you need to know? You need more than that? Well, then you're needy. And you've got some weird codependent stuff going on, and I can't help you with that. All right, my phone's ringing. I got to go. Love you. Bye.